so good to see you here in this room and those of you who are streaming in. I have been in touch, including during the first song I was texting, forgive me for that, but it was in real time with somebody who was saying, the streaming is working really well today. So that's great to know. And so for all of you who are there, we feel like you're with us, and I hope you feel the same so that you're participating as well in this worship the day after Christmas. Last week, I preached from Matthew chapter 10, arguing from Scripture, trying to be as scriptural as we can be, that Jesus was not condoning violence to protect himself or others in the kingdom of God. He was not that kind of Messiah. He didn't ride in on a stallion or a war horse. He didn't amass a great army. He didn't throw all of his men together toward the Roman government in a great coup. That's not the kind of suffering servant that Isaiah spoke about 700 years before his coming. And that's not what he lived out when he came to the earth. However, there's a really good question that arose after that from somebody who is an astute Bible scholar, and they were having a discussion following that specific message. And that comes from Luke 22, because at first glance, you might look at Matthew 10 and Luke 22 and say, it's almost like they were written by two different guys. Which one of these things is right? Because doesn't Jesus say over here in Luke that you're supposed to buy a sword? Didn't he condone that? Well, we're going to look at that today, because what I think is great for us when we have these big questions is to say, can we discern wisdom? Yes. Can we discern what Jesus' intent was? Yes. Can we be good enough Bible scholars, even though none of us have been to, not too many of us, have been to seminary, and we haven't had all these Bible professors? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. What we're trying to do is to become like those Bereans who are of more noble character, because they kept looking into the Word with the right tools at their disposal, and those tools are available to every single one of us. So we're going to look at that. We're going to unpack Luke 22. If you have a Bible in whatever form you brought it in, let me invite you to turn there, because that's where we're camping out today as we try to see what's the difference between Luke 22 and Matthew 10, and what did Jesus intend through that. Let's pray together that God will illuminate this time together in His Word. Father, we're already so grateful to have been in your presence because of praise and worship and beautiful song brought to us by these two ladies. We thank you for the word that's brought to us in the inspired word of God, which we're looking at today, that same word which inspired the songs that we have sung and listened to. We thank you that you are that king of kings, even though you were so vulnerable and came as a babe in a manger. We're praying now as you take us through the word from the cradle to the cross that we'll understand more about you and your purpose and your intent so that we too can walk in your footsteps. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the passage that raises the big question for us. It's found in Luke 22, and I'm going to only look at these two verses so that you can see where the big question comes from, verses 36 and 37. He, meaning Jesus, said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. 
Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Hmm. Yeah, that's a little perplexing, isn't it? Especially when you consider what happened last week when I talked from Matthew 10. And yet now it sounds like he's saying, arm yourselves, gentlemen, we're headed for battle. Is that what it's saying? Well, let me read to you a couple of things that some commentators have said as they have struggled and wrestled with trying to interpret this passage. Some say, yeah, arm yourselves, buy a sword. You're going to need it. In fact, you're going to need it so badly that even if you're too poor to buy one outright, go ahead and sell something so important like your outer cloak that if you don't need that one because this is so much more a priority, you can even sell that and go buy one. Okay. Other commentators say, Ah, uh, this is figurative language. You're heading into a conflict that's much bigger than the one that you encountered when I first sent you out as heralds to say, the kingdom of God has come near. Remember when you did that? Everything was good for you then, but this is going to be a different kind of conflict. So make sure that when you're met with hostility that you trust me because I'll give you what you need in the moment. Okay. Some commentators say, all right, now, Murder, outright murder, is not okay. That's bad. But self-defense is acceptable. And this is for the purpose of self-defense. So yes, you need to arm yourselves, but it's only so you can defend yourselves. If someone comes at you first, then you have my permission to use your swords. Some commentators say, um, Jesus never intended for them to buy a physical sword, but he was referring to the sword of the Spirit. And I would have to say, you've got to stretch pretty far to get to there because it's just not really readily apparent in there. Necessary for spiritual battle. Okay, somewhere is a mixture of these, I think, and we're going to find that discernment. Can we discern what he meant? Yeah, I think so. So let's unpack this today, shall we? First of all, here's a really good exegetical tool for all of us if we're going to be really good Bible readers and studiers, and that is to find the truth in a text in scripture, we've got to avoid proof text and look at the context. Can I get an amen? <laughs> that sounds like something a seminary professor might say because they do a lot, and that applies to all of us. We've got to avoid the proof text by getting lots of context, and that's where we need to go. So, the immediate context is what Jesus is saying to Simon Peter. That's where this discussion starts, and it grows out of some things that Jesus is telling Simon Peter. And that starts with verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon. Now, when Jesus says your name twice, you're in trouble. That's like when your mother uses all three of your names. If you have now Galen, Clark, Cawthorn, the second. And he says, Simon, Simon. Where have we heard that before? Remember Mary and Martha? And Martha was the one who's flittering around, getting all anxious because she was trying to serve. And Martha, or Mary was the one who was hanging on every word. And he goes, Martha, Martha. Well, this is that same tone. Simon Peter, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift all of you disciples as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon. So he says, all of you, you're going to be sifted. But I'm praying specifically for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, ooh, that's an important statement. Because it's suggesting pretty strongly that something's going to happen that's going to cause him to have to turn back. When you turn back, you will be able to strengthen your brothers because of this experience that you're going to go through. 
And Peter, of course, being the humble guy who never just retorts off the cuff, probably said something like, as humble as I am, Lord, I accept your prayer for me, and I trust that what you say is true. Is that what it says in your translation? <laughs> yeah, and mine, mine neither. He actually says, oh, but Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and even to death. Yeah, but is he though? And Jesus says, he answers, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, in other translations or in other uh, gospels three times, which is kind of a euphemism for dawn, before dawn comes up, before the sun comes up, because these roosters will be crowing those three times. And there's a numer numerology there that's important because there were three nails in Jesus' hands. I think every time the rooster crowed, Peter was reminded of each nail. There's several things that three was an important word there. But anyway, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You'll deny that you even knew me. Hmm. So, the part of this passage where Jesus talks to the disciples about purchasing a sword starts with this interaction between Jesus and Simon Peter. So that's where this is beginning. We see something that's a little troubling as well, because as Jesus is telling Simon what's going on here, he says to him that Satan has asked permission to do something here. And Jesus gave it to him. God gave Satan permission to sift these disciples like wheat. What's that sifting process? It's separating the chaff from the kernel. It's making them pure. It's making them fruitful or usable again. And that's precisely what Satan is going to be doing through this trial that's, that uh, Peter is going to be experiencing. Now, where have we heard of that, of that before? Book of Job, where Satan gives God, or God gives Satan permission to be able to really perplex Job by taking away a lot of his family and possessions and things, trying to see if Job would recant in his belief in God, turn away from God and turn towards Satan, which he didn't do, fortunately. But it was a tough trial for him, extremely difficult. So somehow we understand that Satan has limited power. He has limited power on the earth even today. But we also know that God, even if he gives permission for these things, only does so because it's out of his sovereignty so that something good will result from that trial, that sifting, and some kind of a purification will take place in the life of a believer. And it's in this context where we hear that Jesus actually prayed for Simon Peter. Can you imagine Jesus, the Son of God, praying for you? Oh, my goodness. What a concept. I don't know what Peter is feeling right now and what he's thinking, but this is a lot coming at him, and there's so much that's going to be happening in just a few hours that I can't imagine what he must be feeling and experiencing. But this is a huge statement for Jesus to say, and this is what I'm praying for you. And he doesn't say, I'm praying for you so that when you get into that garden, you're going to be strong enough to stand up to the test that's coming your way. In fact, it doesn't sound like he's really talking about what's going to happen in the garden at all. He's saying, after you have been sifted, after this whole ordeal that's going to be before you, and when you have returned, oh, when you have returned to grace, to me, to my purposes, to your understanding of why I really came, then you're going to be able to use this experience to strengthen the brothers. 
Everything that you've gone through after you've been restored is going to be something really usable. Still being used today, by the way, because I'm preaching about it. And so, yes, indeed, God's prayer came true. Jesus prayed for Simon Peter, and it's still coming true today. So he's not saying, Simon, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm praying that God's going to give you the strength to stand so that you don't have to go through that. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. I think one of the greatest trials occurred in Peter's mind as he carried the guilt and shame with him after his denials. That's where some real battles were probably fought in Peter's mind. Can I ever be forgiven for this? Now I know what Jesus was talking about. Man, I really messed up. Here I bragged about, yeah, I'll go with you to prison, Lord. I'll even go to the death for you. Didn't do it. So I'm sure that that was where a real battle was happening. And it probably happened for quite some time because it was not until the resurrection. And then Peter finally sees Jesus and Jesus welcomes him again. It's an amazing thing. So here's an application that I think grows out of this for us as believers today. How do we pray? Isn't it tempting to to pray, God, I sure pray that you're going to take me away from this trial. Get me out of this test. I don't want to have to go through this. Let this cup pass from me. It's okay. We can pray that. But is God not answering if he allows us to go through the test anyway? I think sometimes he is answering by saying, after you have come back, after you have been sifted, this is going to be used in a great way. And so I'm praying that when you return, God's purposes are going to be worked through your life. And you'll be even more fruitful because that chaff will have been removed. This is going to be a purifying trial for you, and you're going to come out stronger on the other side. Well, what is Simon Peter's trial? Jesus is preparing him for the now famous story about the cock crowing three times, and he's going to deny him. And we see that in the garden area, that little courtyard around a fire, and people recognized his speech pattern or his uh, dialect said, oh, I recognize you guys. You you were with him, right? Nope, never knew the man. Three different denials, sure enough. The cock crows three times. Peter is humiliated. So Jesus is saying, when that trial, he doesn't get specific there, but after this whole thing is done, you'll turn back to me. So then, that's the context. That's the immediate context. Then Jesus moves on in Luke 22. And he says something to his disciples to remind them of God's provision way back when he first sent them out, which is what I spoke about last week in Matthew 10. And he says, now you're going to be my heralds, the announcers of the kingdom's coming, and so I want you to go from village to village, and I want you to say, the kingdom of God is near. It has come near to you. And as you do that, you're going to heal the sick, you're going to raise the dead, you're going to cure the leper, you're going to do all these good things to show the authority that you have been given as heralds representing this kingdom. Oh, and by the way, people are going to hate you for it. And because you're identified with me, it's going to bring division into all these groups of people, including even within family units. Brother against brother, father against all that stuff. So then he says, he asks them a teachable moment question. He says, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Good rhetorical question. They probably didn't even have to answer out loud because they knew the answer already. Well, of course not. 
You said that we would be provided for, and we were. We didn't lack anything. Even though we went with nothing, you provided for us adequately. You had said, feel free and avail yourselves to the people, the people of peace that you would find in these villages. Go to them and hang out with them because they're going to help provide and receive that hospitality from them. That's okay. And that's exactly what had happened. So he's reminding them that when they went out fully trusting in him for the results, he gave them everything they needed for the task at hand. And then we see a shift. We see a shift in the next verse, 36, because he says, but now, that's an important couple of words. This is different from the first mission to herald the new kingdom that Jesus had come. Now he says, but now... 2236. But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Man, it would have been so much easier if he had left that out. Because then we wouldn't be scratching our heads and saying, but Lord, what do you mean by that? Because you're telling them that they're supposed to trust you for everything, and yet you're saying to do that. And he says pretty plainly here, if you don't already have one, sell your outer garment and go buy one. The next verse is interesting, though. This is where we're trying to be good Bible investigators. Verse 37 and 38, both of these indicate Jesus does not expect all 12 of these disciples to arm themselves as if they were a platoon or a squad. Let's tackle verse 37 and 38, one at a time. First, verse 37. He says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Now that means that in order to find out what's being fulfilled, we have to find out what he's referring to. He's referring to Isaiah 53, 12, which says this. He poured out his life unto death. Oh, that's important. And was numbered with the transgressors. Where was he numbered with transgressors? Who was he hanging between on the cross? Thief on one side, criminal on the other, transgressors. He's numbered with them. As he bore, and some translations get this really right because the tense means that it's present tense happening right now. As he is bearing the sins of many, he is numbered with the transgressors. This one, uh, NIV, just says, for he bore the sins of many. But it doesn't say when. I think the appropriate interpretation of that has to do with the fact that he's being numbered among these transgressors in the very time that he is pouring himself out for the iniquity of all. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressions. Now, verse 37 shows us that Jesus expected to be fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy about being numbered among these transgressors as he bore the sins of many. He would soon hang on this cross. Now, one commentator said something that I had to kind of wrestle with again. This is some of the things that when Joy walks in and I'm in my study and I'm banging my head against the desk, she says, tough passage? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> because you have to wrestle through these concepts and ask God for discernment so that you're not going to get it wrong. I take this job very seriously. We want to be able to unpack this. This is the word of God. And I think we owe it all the scholarship and intellect and the respect and the humility that we can bring to it. 
But one commentator said that Jesus was probably talking about the fact that it was against Roman law to be armed with a sword that way. And he was trying to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy about being numbered among the transgressors by telling them to go buy a sword so that they would be the transgressors by breaking the law. And that way it would fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. And it didn't take me too long to go, eh. I don't think so. Because Jesus doesn't go around telling people, go break the law so that I can fulfill Old Testament prophecy. <laughs> break God's law so you can fulfill God's purposes. doesn't work that way. In fact, all through Scripture, we see Jesus fulfilling the Jewish law many times to show that he was a good Jewish person and that he was trying to bring with him the fulfillment of the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it through what he did. And he was urging other people Obey the laws of the government. Remember he sent Peter out to buy fish so they could pay the temple tax that one time? Yeah, he gave them some supernatural provision to do that, but he did it so that they could still follow the law. So I had to throw that one out, and I disagreed with that, wrote a sternly worded letter. No, I, I didn't. <laughs> that commentator doesn't know me from Adam, but uh, I disagreed with him. And then the next verse gives another reason to scratch our heads, especially related to the part about swords. The disciples said, See, here are two swords. And he says, That's enough! That would be the way I would expect Mark Elwell to say it if he was preaching. <laughs> I like the fact that he can get animated at times like that. But he says, That's enough. Now, some translations take the transliteration and they say, it is enough. That sounds much more manby-panty. It is enough. Now, if you're a parent and you've been telling your child over and over something that you really want them to get across, kid, I don't want you to climb up on top of the counter and reach into that cookie jar. You're going to fall or you're going to knock something off the counter and break something. And they keep trying to do it. Do you finally say, it is enough? No, you say, that's enough! And then you apologize for having lost your temper. But I think Jesus was just about reaching the end of himself and his patience at these disciples because they weren't catching it yet. And he says, that's enough. Not, it is enough. And I think that the exclamation, part, exclamation mark, which we see in several translations, gets it right because of the tone of the conversation and the words that are being used here. Based on the original language, I think Jesus said, that is enough. Now, we have to say, what does, what does that mean, though? How does that help us as we interpret what he meant by that? It could mean, that's enough talk about weapons. Stop it. You have missed my point. I was contrasting for you. Now, we're reading between the lines here. Because it sure sounds like he's saying, if you don't have a sword... Sell your cloak and go buy one. But he may have been saying it in a tone that would have been sort of, yeah, but if you, it might have been facetiousness. I don't know. I don't much think so. But he could have been saying something like, I was contrasting about how God supplied for your every need when you were heralding the kingdom when I sent you out the first time at the beginning of the ministry. You can trust him again by not taking a sword with you. And what I was saying is there are going to be some who are going to try to do it in their own strength anyway. And they're going to try to go and buy a sword no matter what the cost because they think that's the only way for us to fight this battle. And you're missing my point. The real battle is going to be in your heads 
and in your hearts. And you need to prepare yourself for the real battle at hand. And it's not going to be fought with swords. So that's enough. Or, and here's one that makes even more sense to me because of the verbiage. Hand mean two is more than enough. That that's enough. In the original language, the words for it is enough or that's enough means overly sufficient. <laughs> so two swords is more than enough. And in the context, it really could mean this specifically. Two swords are too, too many. That makes a lot of sense to me. In either case, Jesus' response to the disciples' words, we have two swords, shows us that he is not he is not instructing the 12 disciples to arm themselves and get ready for a major battle. That's not what he's about. And I've got to point out, if we're going to be intellectually honest and in looking at this passage, I have to point out, some people who try to grab this passage to justify the disciples' physical self-defense would say, see, Jesus is saying, go ahead and use the two swords that you already have. But think about the logic of the situation. Twelve guys, untrained, not soldiers. We got fishermen, we got rabble, we got tax collector, against trained Roman soldiers who are heavily armed. I don't think so. I'm not buying it. I don't think that he's saying that's enough. That's enough swords for you to be able to tackle what you're going to be facing next. Everything is pointing to the fact that Jesus means something else by that. How can we know for sure? We know who Jesus is by what he has done. That's a foreshadowing. Hold on to that thought. In the garden, in the garden, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss to identify him. And what Jesus says next helps give us more context, immediate context to what he meant by that previous statement. Verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And of course, Simon Peter, being the impetuous one, is already, he's got the sword out. They're maybe even mouthing the words, and before they finish that sentence, whack! Off comes Malchus's right ear. It's that specific, too. They even tell which ear it is. The servant of the high priest. Peter starts leaping into action with one of the two swords that they said they had at their disposal. And look at what Jesus says. Go for it, Peter. Good for you. Is that what the, the modern twisted translation says? Yeah, it doesn't say that at all. In fact, he says, no more of this. And if he'd had a music stand in front of it, he would have pounded that because he said, stop it. Again, with the, it is enough. That's enough. Stop it. You're continuing to miss my point, boys. And he touched the man's ear. Talk about de-escalating a situation. <laughs> Man, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody in your midst if they did something wrong and it actually physically hurt somebody if you could say, stop it, and you heal the person. That's exactly what Jesus did here. Sounds like, a lot like, that's enough. So based on this interaction, <laughs> when Jesus stops the violence that Peter started, and then based on what he says, even next, further context, we can see that Jesus did not, let me be clear and say he did not advocate using weapons to protect himself or the disciples 
or the kingdom of God, which Jesus is ushering in. Because the way he is ushering it in is exactly what we see in Philippians in that verse that was read in our praise and worship time. That he came, took on the form of a human being to serve others and laid his life down for other people. That's the suffering servant. That's the Messiah. So, Jesus now turns his attention to those who are coming to arrest him and he says some things that give us more context. He says to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Another rhetorical question. The obvious answer is, well, no. You don't look exactly like the kind of rabble-rousers we would expect to see. You've only got two swords anyway, and that guy can't even use his will. He missed the guy and just hit his ear. So, yeah, he doesn't expect his followers to be that way. Starting right here in the garden. And I think we can extrapolate that and say, he doesn't expect us to defend the kingdom in the way that the world would defend ideology. And then he says this to the people arresting him. He goes further and he says, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. What was he doing in the temple courts? Teaching peacefully. But this, uh, this is your hour, he says to the people who have come to arrest him. This is your hour when darkness reigns. Hmm. So, no matter how you slice it, okay, no sword pun intended there, when you use the context of Scripture to discern what Jesus is talking about here, you cannot conclude that Jesus expects his followers to arm themselves and defend the kingdom or to defend him. That's not what he's about. Simon Peter's epilogue. This is interesting. Because remember back at the very beginning of this passage when Jesus says, and I prayed for you, Simon, that when you returned, you can use your experience, your sifting, to encourage the others. Did he? Did he come back? Yes, absolutely. Thankfully. And Jesus welcomed him. He restored him. said, now feed my sheep. And boy, did Simon Peter ever learn. Something incredible happened between the time that Simon Peter denied Christ three times and the time that Christ said, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Something important happened. Listen to these words that Peter used to encourage his fellow believers. It comes from 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In all this, he writes, greatly rejoice, though now for a little while... You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That sounds like a guy who's been refined. That sounds like a guy who understands what it means to learn to suffer well and not retaliate, but to show Christ-like attributes in the face of difficult behavior in others. So, you want to know what the best commentary is that you can go out and buy? Just get a Bible and look at Jesus' actions. The best commentary ever. 
If you want to know what the best context is to understand what Jesus meant, look at Jesus' actions. We know who he is by what he has done. He laid down his life for others. He even said to those who had nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's Jesus. So if you look at one passage that says go buy swords and you're confused by that, look to Jesus' overall actions and you're going to catch a clue about how to interpret that one passage. When we feel slighted, when we feel unjustly treated by others or disrespected, I would say persecuted, but most of us don't know what real persecution looks like, especially after listening to some of the missionaries who came and shared from other cultures what they're dealing with. How should we respond? Since we are to flesh out Jesus' character qualities to others, are we supposed to weaponize our words? Are we supposed to put a quiver on our back and use all the offenses that that person throws at us and tuck them away so that we can pull them out later and shoot them back at them as weapons? Not according to this passage in Luke 22. And one thing I think that we need to really be cautious about is dehumanizing our enemies. That's when things get scary. If somebody can use their ideology to dehumanize an enemy and then to convince you that you are the immoral one if you don't take care of that immoral person, that's when things really escalate because ideas and ideologies have consequences. We've seen it in history. And some of those ideologies are dangerous. Christ is not teaching an ideology that dehumanizes his enemies. He did the exact opposite. You go back to his manifesto on the Sermon on the Mount and he says, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. That's how we see how to interpret this passage. He's not saying weaponize our words. He's not saying weaponize anything. He's saying love your enemies and continue to show who I am by being Christ to them so that they can be drawn to God because it's God's love that leads people to repentance. In the believer's life, and I found this to be true in my own, most of the battles are not fought when I'm standing toe-to-toe with somebody who differs with me. For one thing, I'm just not that smart. I don't think quickly enough on my feet, and I have all the great responses two hours after I've spoken with them. And I think, oh, I just wish I'd said that. I could have eviscerated them with my words. I think maybe God blessed me by not being that quick on my feet because he knows that I would do more damage than good and he'd have to reach over and heal somebody after I'd cut off their ear. Instead, I think the battles are fought in the gardens of our heart, in the garden of Gethsemane that we call our heart. And it's as we're wrestling with these differences and these concepts to say, okay, here's what the flesh says I want to do. I want to eviscerate this person. I want to cut them to shreds. I want to kill them with the death of a thousand paper cuts. In the name of Jesus. That's right, Mark. Praise God. And Jesus says, no. That's not the kind of Messiah that I've come to be for you. I've come to lay myself down for you. Can you do that for your enemy? And after you've wrestled that, and after you have said, yes, but Lord, I just feel so... And he goes, I know. I felt it too. And then he says, can you love that person enough to lay aside all that you feel needs to be restored to you because something was taken from you because they offended you? And can you love them enough to show them Christ? 
That's where my battles are fought. And sometimes it takes two or three days and I'm through the week and I'm pacing and I'm taking walks and I'm wrestling and I'm having these talks with Christ. You know, when you wrestle with Jesus, he always wins. And when he does, then I have to lay down my sword or my words and I have to say, all right, I'm not going to send that email. I'm going to hit delete, thankfully. And I'm going to recall some good things that I can say to this person and try to keep a bridge built so that the gospel can be furthered, the kingdom can be uplifted, and Jesus Christ reigns. That's where I need the most work. And I suspect I might not be alone in that. (laughs) And I'm praying that as we start 2022, all of us will start to learn where the battles are really fought that we will cease weaponizing against our enemies and that we will lay ourselves down for the sake of the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have really spoken to me as I wrestled my way through Luke 22. And I'm so grateful for the good question that came in response to Matthew 10. And I'm grateful that we can all tackle these tough questions by looking into your word with the best commentary ever, the life and example of Jesus Christ. I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, will continue to work in the gardens of our hearts as we enter a new era armed with the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.